Welcome to Librarians Allowed, an independent podcast presented by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Farris, and a special welcome to any new listeners. We're finally available to subscribe on iTunes, so hopefully that means there are a few more ears listening in for this episode. Hello to you all. Um, This was a really special episode for me and a a real privilege to record. My guest for the episode is Scott Bonner. Scott is the director of Ferguson Municipal Public Library in Ferguson, Missouri. And Scott was in Dublin last week to deliver the Friday keynote at ASL 2017. And he really had the crowd just hanging on his every word. Um, It was a real privilege to sit down with him at uh, my kitchen table for a chat. Yeah, we we, no expense spared on the classy venues um, for this podcast Um, and just have him tell the story of how he responded um, to the tensions in Ferguson in the aftermath of the shooting of Michael Brown in August uh, 2014. When we started our discussions this time last year for who we wanted as a keynote for ASL 2017, it was really only ever Scott Bonner um, on that list and he really didn't disappoint. So I hope you enjoy listening to more of what he has to say about how libraries can step up for communities in crisis and how to be a more responsive library service. Bonner, um, fresh off his fantastic ASL keynote um, on Friday morning. Thanks. Um, Scott is the director of Ferguson Municipal Public Library in mm-hmm. Ferguson, Missouri, and we're delighted to have had you here for ASL 2017, and I'm delighted to have you join me on Librarians Allowed. Um, so welcome to Ireland first, and uh, well done on Friday. Um, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to, to speak on your podcast. I appreciate it. I'm delighted. Librarians Allowed. Um, it's a great name. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll start. We'll start at the start. Unusually, we'll start at the start. Um, what was your kind of relationship with libraries when you were a kid, or what? What was your kind of perception of libraries when you were younger? I have hardly any memory of libraries as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, not don't have too many memories of being a kid. Uh, but one of the things I do remember is going through all the Encyclopedia Brown books at my uh, school library whenever I was in grade school. And I know I probably got books like Robinson Crusoe and that kind of thing from mm-hmm. the school library and we're going through a lot of those too. So the, the memory is more of books than of libraries. Yeah. I vaguely remember what the elementary school library looked like. I vaguely remember what my high school library looked like. <laughs> those are all memories that you've blocked out. <laughs> right. Like we all do with those years. Right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I remember much better the library um, at, um, I went to uh, JUCO um, East Central College in Union, Missouri for two years and then I went for two years at a uh, um, public school or state school, what would you call it? We call it a state school, Um, Missouri Southern State College in Joplin, Missouri and I remember that library very well because I worked as the um, student help. That's how I got through the last years of college. I had a scholarship to pay for college and then worked at the library to pay for like food. Okay. So you did have an early mm-hmm. introduction to, to working in libraries? Yes, and after I graduated, um, they invited me back to be their evening supervisor clerk ah. for a while. And so was that your first introduction to this? This is a job that people do, or there's, there's yeah. more to this than, than meets the eye? Oh, pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always thought I was going to be a... Uh, psychology researcher right mm-hmm. not not therapy but doing doing like science yeah, and statistics and that kind of stuff your, your undergrad was in psychology yeah. yep exactly and I uh, decided to delay grad school because my then girlfriend now wife Janessa um, had better academic numbers and so we thought oh she'll go to grad school first so I ended up working in lockdown facilities and mental health, uh, mm-hmm. figuring it's at least mental healthy mm-hmm. or psychology related. Yeah. It's not research, but whatever. Maybe it'll inform my research later. Yeah. So I worked in mental health for about nine years. Um, 
and uh, in mostly in lockdown facilities with kids and adolescents. Some as an intensive in-home case manager, which means a poorly paid, poorly trained therapist with a car. Um, so I go out there and just like cluelessly try to stumble my way through helping families. Um, but that work, one, it made me crazy. Mm-hmm. By the time I was nine years in, and most people only last like a couple of years yeah, doing that kind of ground level like mental health. Right. I, I, by the time I was nine years in, I was an anxious mess and just ugh. And I had to find some kind of work where I wouldn't be driven crazy. And the other thing is that mental health ruined me for any kind of work where I'm not helping people. Yeah. And so then it was, what kind of work can I do where I help people, but I don't have to worry about someone attacking me. I don't have to worry about some kid peeing on me. I don't have to worry about the horrible things that happen to you when you're doing yeah. mental health at that ground level. And the answer that I found was to work at Purdue University's map library as their map curator, which was great, just a great job. And it wasn't a professional position, Mm -hmm. um, but it made me start thinking about professional position. Um, And we moved back to St. Louis, and I worked for a couple years at Washington University in St. Louis as a serials clerk. Um, And then when our first child was born Dryden mm-hmm. um, someone needed to stay home and be the stay home parent for the first couple of years mm-hmm. and my wife made more money than me and so I stayed home oh. and watched him during the day mm-hmm. went to library school at night got my library degree and huzzah I'm in librarianship mm-hmm. so actually probably in a way the training in mental health was probably it's an unusual route into librarianship but there's mm-hmm. probably quite a good crossover in terms of the as you said, the, the helping people aspect. Right. And, the, and to be prepared for meeting people in potentially quite vulnerable positions and meeting yes. people who have extremely high kind of needs that you have to figure out for them and maybe not always being met by them in the most kind of receptive way. Yeah. And uh, you learn a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, you learn to recognize that that people who, you know, People, well, you get a lot of tolerance for the variety of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And I'm not scared of someone who's acting weird, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I understand that there's a very narrow range of mental health issues that actually lead to violence. Mm-hmm. And so most people who are acting crazy and you're like, oh my God, what do I do with this person? I'm like, okay, let's go talk, right? Um, so that's all useful. Um Especially the empathy part. It means that I, I think about people as people first, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or I try to. And um, whenever my staff are like, I don't know about that person, I'm like, I'll go talk to them. Mm-hmm. So it helps. Yeah. Well, particularly in public libraries, you, you are meeting just such a broad range of different people. Mm-hmm. And often, increasingly so now in terms of public libraries and the sort of needs that they're having to meet. You are meeting people sometimes in a state of crisis, so yes, I don't think I'd ever thought about the, the link yeah. between kind of mental health training and mm-hmm. um, working in public library libraries. But it, it's a good they're they're good kind of complements to each other, probably. It's easy in library land to to um, think of what we do as entirely an intellectual process, right? We are about information and yeah. and sharing resources and that kind of thing. Um, Having that background in mental health makes me more aware of the fact that we're also of the heart. Mm-hmm. We're a profession of both head and heart. And so it's easy to get locked in just the head, but no, yeah. we have to have heart too. But even people who work in academic libraries and in very academic um, elements of academic librarianship, mm-hmm. the first point of their, you know step one in their job is you, you have to figure out what someone's information need is. And even if they're mm-hmm. extremely articulate with their... Um, information needs and with their research support needs you need to sort of sit down and meet them exactly where they are yep. figure out what their working process is how they kind of navigate their way through inf- information what's going to work for them step one is always meet the person where they are yeah what is a reference in- interview if not an act of empathy yeah so yeah reference in- interviews are kind of yeah they are and empathy mm-hmm. empathy is the start mm-hmm. of the reference interview Right, exactly. And especially like 
incoming college freshmen that like have never really done research ever and they want to look like they really know what they're doing but then they really don't know what they're doing and so you're like you have to get past their uh, bravado Mm. and they're often really quite an emotional state sometimes Mm -hmm. certainly whenever I worked with younger students you know you're you're often dealing with stuff that isn't quite the, the remit of the librarian you're often dealing with kind of bringing them down from a state of panic when they're distressed about assignments or they're distressed before exams mm-hmm. or they're just stressed in general and the library can often be the place where all of that right. emotional kind of turmoil gets played out especially in the last four hours before they're supposed to turn the assignment and that's when they started reading the instructions yes <laughs> so you are often meeting people at point of crisis um, yeah so what was your first professional position then when you finished the, the qualification I thought I was going to be an academic librarian, and then I had, maybe I'll be a children's librarian as a fallback, and I didn't do either one. The first position that I had as a professional was running the Julia Davis branch of the St. Louis Public Library System, which is Mm. um, up in the the poorest part of uh, St. Louis City proper. Mm. And I learned there that I am no good for working in a big system, because I watched people I went up there, I was only there for like six months. Mm. During that time, I watched the politics of that place eat people up. Yeah. Um, not that it's any worse than any other big system. I don't know how mm-hmm. that, that's the only big system library I've worked in. So maybe just absolutely normal. But I realized very early on that I was not going to be able to beat me and work in a big system with a bureaucracy and with competing factions looking for resources and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So I got a job as the adult services provider at the Richmond Heights Memorial Library, which is an independent library in St. Louis County. Um, and eventually became the technology person there too, um, in addition to adult services and some supervisory role and that kind of stuff, which really kind of turned into like building blocks leading toward being a director somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I started applying for director jobs and eventually I got the director job at Ferguson Municipal Public Library in mm. July 1st, 2014. Yeah, so you really weren't in the job too long before all of the, the unrest kicked off. Yeah, yeah, about five weeks or six, five weeks, whatever, July 1st to uh, August 9th, whatever that turns out to be. Yeah, so, yeah, so well, then that, that actually helped, right? Um, it helped, help, whatever. Mm-hmm. Being utterly clueless in my job, that's great. <laughs> I don't want people to say that because I really like that idea of just like, at a certain point, you have to just kind of take a deep breath and figure out mm. that, you know, stuff is going to happen. I'm not going to be able to prepare for it. And hopefully I just have what I need already and I'll be able to pull on it. Um, and did you feel by the time you got to the, the directorship? Kind of, yeah, I know what I'm doing here. I kind of know what works for me, what doesn't work for me. I, I know the sort of librarian I want to be or I thought I did Mm -hmm. um, in that in the interview for that position I remember telling them here's what I do and don't know about finances and budgets and I do know pretty well about how training people and this thing and that thing and technology and all this good stuff Um, uh, I think I was as prepared in some areas as I could have been and I was still only half prepared Mm -hmm. and in other areas I was clueless so yay um, but whenever there was, you know, turmoil in Ferguson, it was actually advantageous that I was brand new to the job mm-hmm. because it meant that I was still kind of defining myself to my board and my board was able to like kind of give me rain. Maybe they were just giving me rope to see if I'd hang myself, but yeah. they they gave me the freedom to move and I became, was able to be very, very responsive. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's also very good that I was part of an independent library, uh, not part of a big system, because there was no bureaucracy to put brakes on us either. And since my board was willing to trust me to to figure it out, um, and I was moving in the direction they wanted a library director to move, Mm -hmm. and there was no bureaucracy to put brakes on us, it meant that we kind of went crazy in August August through November of 2014, doing lots and lots of programs and being very responsive, and that really worked out well for the library. Yeah, when... So going back to kind of like in the days before the Michael Brown shooting and then mm-hmm. in the immediate aftermath, 
was there ever a point where you sort of said, yeah, this is, you know, this is something the library needs to be responding to what's happening in the community and there is a, you know, there's, there's a place for us here, there's a role for us to play, or did you sort of just think, hey, we're in the middle of this crazy stuff going on, there's a lot of uncertainty, people are scared, um, we just have to try and respond to it, or did you think, yeah, the library definitely has, you know, it needs to step up and play a, a role here I think speak to the community? Before um, everything started happening, I already had the idea, I already believed in the idea of a independent library with a well-defined community so it could be very responsive to the people of that community. Mm. So I already had that very kind of community-focused idea mm. as an academic understanding, kind of as an abstract. Yeah. This is like the way I think a library ought to work, and I'd mm. done a little bit of that in, in Richmond Heights. I think that when all the turmoil started happening, and we became like the focus of the country and Ferguson, a small, well-established uh, community with its distinctive character became mm -hmm. Ferguson hashtag representative of everything evil in the world. Yeah. Um, and all these needs started churning up, right? There were people that were scared. There were people that were angry. There were people that were confused about what had happened or why it had happened here and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that that combined with me just kind of stumbling and fumbling and realizing when I stumbled and fumbled at the very beginning, all that made me 10 times as committed to the idea, mm -hmm. right? It became not just a matter of an academic understanding, but a matter of heart. So I really believe, deeply believe now mm -hmm. in the idea of being just as responsive as I possibly can, of listening as carefully as I can, of uh, not just helping my community, but being caring about it, being involved in it, right? Mm -hmm. So it took what was a, a mission and turned it into like a calling. Yeah. I'm sure when you went in, even with that kind of underlying mission and that value system in mm -hmm. your approach to librarianship, there was no way that you could have ever thought, okay, in five weeks time, this is how it's going to play out. Oh, like, this Lord is God. how me kind of uh, doing doing my job in a way that's informed by a kind of an underlying value system. This is how it's going to play out. No, no, man. I started that job and I thought, okay, I'm going to take a year. We're not going to do any major changes. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to get to know how things lay. And once I start knowing what I'm doing, then maybe I can start making some of these changes that I think I need to make. Mm -hmm. You know, I had some ideas right at the start of what needed to change. I had this long-term plan what would have been a year-long plan of getting to know um, my library and the community and then before I make changes became like a three-month crash course. Oh, gee, we're going to change everything now because yeah. we have to, and we have to kind of radically rethink of what we're doing and how we're doing it. So best laid plans of mice and men, it just totally went boop out the window. So just boom, straight into yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like it's the same direction I would have gone, but at 10 times the pace. Mm. And were there ever times in those kind of early days when you were trying to respond to what was best for the community and what was best for the library and your staff and you? Were there times when, I know you did mention there were a few in your keynote that there were a few people who said, you're crazy to do this, <laughs> you're crazy to open the library. Were there times where you felt under a lot of pressure to behave differently to what was kind of instinctive to you? Yes, um, yes, I think so, uh, though it wasn't, like I said, there was no one putting brakes. Mm -hmm. It was a matter of um, competing needs. So like you mentioned, the staff people being scared. Mm -hmm. One thing that we established early on is that it would be okay to call in scared just like you would call in sick. Yeah, I remember right? seeing that on your, um, on your Twitter feed. Some of the reports coming out at the time, and I loved that expression, like the idea of calling in scared. Right. And so that, that that was okay. You know, there was the understanding that I wouldn't open the library if I thought it was unsafe. Mm -hmm. and that was like the, the default. But if you were too scared, you couldn't. You could call in scared, um, and that was a compromise between the very specific need of a staff member who was scared and the wider need to serve the public. You know, and it means mm -hmm. the rest of us scramble a bit more, and that's okay. We'll live with it because I'm not going to make someone lie to me. Yeah. 
because that's what's going to happen, right? If you don't leave that opening, then they're going to call in and say they're sick when they're not. And they're going to feel guilty all day long. And I'm going to wonder if they lied to me all day long. Yeah. And it's all just a bunch of bullshit. Let's not do that. Mm -hmm. Can I cuss? You can, yes. Good thing. (laughs) (laughs) You can drop a few F-bombs if you want to. Right. (laughs) Oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck yeah. We're happy with the the cursing on librarians allowed. All right. (laughs) No censorship here. So yeah, there were there were there was specific competing needs issues. Mm. Um, there was one incident where I felt strong pushback from the community, and that was mm. that um, somewhere in the middle of the is either the week of the school for peace or right after. Whenever it was absolutely high intensity mode, and I was spending all day running around. Mm. So I'm running across the library one day, and I look over there, and I see two people excuse me, very well-dressed, very kind of formal-looking, staring at a blank space on my wall. And I was busy running back and forth, so I'm like, oh, whatever. Yeah. People like to stare at weird things. Did it already kind of look a bit like, hmm, that's a bit weird? Yeah, that'll be a conversation soon, (laughs) right? But I was too busy bouncing around. And so the second time I saw them, a few minutes later, I'm like, all right, now they're looking at a different place on the wall. They've got a plan of some sort, but i got to take care of this thing in front of me. By the third time I saw them, I'm like, okay, they are now my first priority. Yeah, that's up here. <laughs> Why are these people standing there? So I went over and talked to them, and they said, oh, they're part of an um, a alliance of uh, black art galleries. Mm. Um, and they're looking at doing a show across 14 different venues in the St. Louis area, including some very high prestige venues, some of the universities and that kind of thing. Mm. And the theme of the show will be um, artists responding to the events of Ferguson. And they wanted to know if the, if they could put up art in the library and um, kind of make that where they do their kickoff party. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it for a second. I thought, you know, cultural literacy would definitely include things like an art display. And if it's an art display that directly addresses the central issue facing our community right now, mm-hmm. That's right, right, yeah, library should be doing exactly that. And so I said, yes, with one caveat. Mm-hmm. Um, as you put up art and decide what goes where, um, you can put up controversial stuff, you can put up things that make people think and give people pause, but if you put up something that will make one person punch another person in the face because they argued over it, that could be a problem for us. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. And some would call that censorship and others would call that prudence and I hate censorship so I like to think of it as prudence. <laughs> yeah. It's a really difficult call though because yeah, it seems like in, in all of this while everything was going on you were constantly in a position where you were struggling with kind of making you know a decision that went along with kind of your conscience and your mm. kind of code of ethics and the way that you felt was best to respond to the community perpetually but also <laughs> then worrying about well, what if this ca- causes a knock-on effect where it puts someone in danger or it causes violence um, it, it's really difficult to be able to know yep. particularly in, in a situation like that where just tempers are at yes absolutely an entire community is just this it's a flashpoint of right everyone is on tender hooks and as yeah especially in ferguson because um the news presented as like police versus protesters mm-hmm. there were not two sides to things in ferguson there were 51 sides 51 sides that all disagreed in every subtle different way and there was all kinds of um strife that we were working through and part of what the library did is present the idea of we have problems we will work through them we will come together in the end as a community to kind of give that sense of optimism but back to the the art thing so i agree i go to my board and i say this is what i know and this is what i said and the board says okay sound okay um and then uh, about a month or so before the art is going to go up so this would be september-ish um the organization putting this show together does the public announcement and they announced what the name of the show was going to be. And the name of the show was going to be Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Artists Respond. Now, that's really the obvious name to give something like this, because Hands Up, Don't Shoot was yeah. a central theme of, or central, you know, kind of message of a lot of the early early protesting. Um, and outside of Ferguson, it's like, well, that's a very obvious answer. Mm-hmm. Inside of Ferguson, that was like, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah. Kind of thing. Because I suddenly got phone calls. 
Oh, probably about eight or so phone calls, six or six or so phone calls, a couple of visits in person. And everyone who gave me their name gave me a name that everyone in Ferguson knows. So it was like influential people giving me a phone call saying, why on earth does the library hate the police? Why are you opposing your own city? Yeah. Why are you, you know, that kind of response. And so that's a big deal. Yeah, how do you respond to that? Um, well, what I did, I did not back down from the art show because it was in our mission mm -hmm. and it was the right thing to do. What I did do is I had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with the people as they called in. And I would say, you know, here's what I knew. Here's why I said yes. Here are the concerns that I have about it too. Mm -hmm. Here's I'm hearing you, I understand you. Uh, we haven't seen the art yet. So all I can ask is that you, you know, wait till you see what's actually up on the walls. Mm -hmm. It might not be, you understand, someone from outside Ferguson, they don't get how yeah. tough it is right here in our town. So understand if you would, give it a little time, um, and you know, come back at me if the, once the art's on the walls, if that's mm -hmm. beyond the pale, right? And so we planned this whole art, the black, um, Black Galleries Alliance. I'm getting the name wrong. Mm -hmm. They planned the whole show. It was across all these venues across town. It went off just exactly what they thought it would. They put up um, eight, maybe ten pieces in the library, and they were a wide range of points of view and a wide range of sensibilities and is actually very good, thoughtful, sometimes troubling, difficult material. Mm -hmm. And they had the the introductory ceremony where it was the first time I public speak did public speaking in years. So mm -hmm. I had the wonderfully horribly embarrassing moment of right before I was supposed to go on stage, I got so anxious I threw up into a trash can. <gasps> while it's a board member, like I've never actually done the throwing up, but I always think I'm going to. <laughs> while a board member and one of my employees were in the room, <laughs> it's like oh my god, this is horrible. But yeah, I threw up in a trash can. I get up, went out there because I have a phobic response to speaking, or I did at that time. Went out there and gave my speech. There was poetry. There was, you know, all this other great stuff. And um, at the end of the ceremony, one of the people, the first person who had come to me saying, how dare you? Mm -hmm. She had attended the ceremony and she came up to me at the end of it. And she very quietly goes, wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> that's a win <laughs> yeah. yeah and I said thank you very much because I knew how hard that was for her to yeah. say and that was absolutely a win I haven't heard anything else back from that now there may be still people who are angry at the library for mm -hmm. having an art display um, on the issue that so many people would rather not <sighs> well there are a lot of people in Ferguson who think that was unfair that the issue was even brought up and other people in Ferguson who are like Thank God this is finally out in the open. Yeah. Right? So it's... <laughs> um, but I don't know how many of those people who would rather not have had an art display at the library are still mad at me about the art display at the library. I haven't heard any more grief from it. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to think that at least it was calm enough that no one, you know, ginned up a campaign against the library. Yeah. Was that a worry? I mean, that must have been a worry as well in, in all of the things that you were trying to balance in terms of the decision-making. Like, am I going to lose people here in mm -hmm. in the direction that I'm choosing to go with the library like the, the gamble of well who do I bring who am I going to bring in with this and who am I going to lose with this like what what was your thinking oh, on that and do you think there were people we have lost people because yeah. of the direction we've gone with the library there are people who are very happy when the library was super super quiet and not doing a lot of programming because they just wanted the books and they were happy to come in there to a super quiet library and get their books and leave yeah now we have a library full of people and full of noise and full of people mm -hmm. on the computers getting jobs and kids coming to programs and everything else and so it's not a super quiet library like it was before I think we I know we've lost people yeah I've heard people give me those comments at the same time we've also gained a lot more people who didn't think the library was for them mm -hmm. and now they do it's um, a tough call yeah, yeah it is it is always a tough call um and what I was really worried about with that whole art thing is that since we are we're not part of the city. We're not a department of the city, so we can't. We don't get city money. We get our own money, right? We get um, uh, a percentage of property taxes comes directly to us. Mm -hmm. 
which, and that is said by public vote, the worst case scenario would have been if some of these influential players would have said, you know what, let's just not have a library. And they could have put on a ballot campaign and got their friends to vote for it, and the library could have been voted um, not out of existence, technically, but out of all funding yeah. over the space of months. And that was my worst fear, but that didn't even come close to happening. That's good, because that, that is legitimately something that mm-hmm. could have happened and probably has happened before mm-hmm. in, in other communities, uh, and certainly with you know, closer to home with so many libraries closing or being forced to kind of go into positions of reducing staff. And the, the influence of, of people in your local area is, is really important, and the influence of, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's all politics, how money flows. Right. Um, so those decisions must have weighed very heavily on you. Was there ever a time mm-hmm. when, like, did your family ever say, listen, you know, enough, you're, you're spending every waking hour at the library, you're under a lot of pressure, do, does, do you need, does this need to be on your shoulders, do you need to be playing this role, did, did they ever kind of sit you down and <laughs> have an intervention and go, is this what the library should be doing, is this the, the burden you should be taking on yourself? Um, my wife was heavily burdened all the way through autumn yeah. of 2014 because uh, I really was working crazy long days and never sleeping at all. Mm. Um, and we have four kids who are now Very between the ages young. of 2 and 12. So at the time they would have been between 0 and 10, mm. um, which is a hell of a burden. Um, my wife, I think, recognized that this was super important like an issue of national concern and that the library had a special role to play in the community um kind of getting that sense of self and cultural understanding of those kind of things that libraries do and so she didn't complain but after the november grand jury announcement things got hot again and then they got quiet for a moment i remember being visiting in-laws for Christmas, and it's the first time I had stepped away from the library for more than you know half a day, mm-hmm. and so I was. We were down there for like a week, and there was something that happened. I can't remember what it was now, and I saw it on my phone. I think, and I was like, "Okay, I've got to call back and make sure this is what this is, and, and make sure this isn't going to affect the library, something mm-hmm. protest related or whatever." And she was like, "No, goddamn it, no." Yeah. Right. This is your first time walking away. This is you're supposed to be family and nothing else over Christmas. Stop it. Mm-hmm. And the anger that was there made me realize just how uh, how much she had been, you know, uh, suffering for the cause, so to speak. Yeah. And she was done with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at that point, I had to start thinking a little more deeply about balancing work and life and making sure that I wasn't, you know, sacrificing home for the benefit of work. Yeah. After that, it was much more of a balanced affair. Also, after that, protests became protests were no longer a daily occurrence. They were no longer getting big every weekend. Uh, come Christmas time, that's about whenever protests became an occasional thing. And we only had real big protests whenever there were, you know, an in, another incident of uh, some unarmed black person being killed mm-hmm. by the police somewhere in the country, like you know Dallas or Cal- Chicago or something like that. Then there'd be echo protests in Ferguson. And whenever anniversaries came up, there'd be protests in Ferguson. But otherwise, it wasn't lots of protests. It wasn't police drawing lines and pushing people. Uh, it wasn't tear gas and bullets. And it wasn't people being angry that their communities were so disrupted and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it quieted down about then, which made it the right time for me to rethink that balance. Yeah. Um, so the burden, though, on the, on the family was immense. And it's hard to even describe how, yeah. how difficult it was for them. It must have been really difficult for them to see you going through something that you know, at, at times you were actually, you know, could potentially be in danger. And yeah, when I was foolish enough to put myself in danger. Yeah. I mean, so uh, the the story of you staying overnight in the in the library and mm-hmm. hearing the hearing the protests outside and the person trying to break in the story yeah. that you told on on Friday. I think everyone was just there on, on tender hooks waiting for the end of that story where <laughs> that, that, that you would say, okay, but the library stayed intact, it wasn't broken into. Mm-hmm. You know. I had one person, uh, one time I was telling that story to a to an engineering class that was learning, um, like, like they, were, they were trying to do this thing with the, where the engineers would also learn about communities and serving communities. And so I told that story, and one of the people who was a uh, teacher in the class afterward was like, you were right there in front of me, 
I knew you came out okay. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> but I was still on tenderhooks the whole time going, is it going to be all that's right? That's how I felt listening to you talk on Friday. I was like, I know what the outcome of this was. I've heard right. the story. <laughs> but I'm still really nervous because I think what, what everyone in the room was thinking, because it was a room full of librarians, everyone was thinking, would I do that for my library? Would I put myself in that position? I don't recommend and I it. I don't know. Well, yeah. Like, do you think at points where it was that partly like the, the adrenaline being wired up, just the, the stress, the lack of sleep? Do you ever look back at that and think, why was, why was oh, I yeah. doing that? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, all right. So just to be painfully honest, mm-hmm. one, I was there because I had subsumed all the anxieties the previous weeks into one irrational fear of a firebug. Mm. And so I thought I could, that was me trying to force some kind of control over an uncontrollable situation. Yeah. Right. And that's why I put myself into a foolish position. Two, I look back on that with a combination of kind of pride. I was there for my library and I maybe I had some small role in the library not being broken down. Yeah. The windows not being broken in the library when every other window within a half mile radius was. And then three, oh my God, that was so stupid. Mm-hmm. And... I couldn't do a damn thing to defend the library from any kind of threat. All I was doing was putting myself at risk for no good reason. Um, and if, if you know, it was it was at that point, it was a mob doing mob thing. It, it was not a rational thing. No one was, no one was in their right minds out there in the streets. If they would have broken the library, which was you know uh, narrowly, narrowly averted. Um. There's nothing I could do yeah. except to get plan? hurt. If they, if they had come in while you were there that night when you heard them outside, what, did you ever think like, "This is my speech. This is what I'm going to say to them. I'm going to no, just stand up on a no. table and calmly and rationally appeal to them." That I was thought it was going to be all about a firebug. I was listening for a broken glass and holding a fire extinguisher. Mm-hmm. Right? It it somehow never occurred to me even though the entire town was on tender hooks about the exact issue it somehow never occurred to me that someone might you know break the glass of the library or break mm-hmm. in or burn it down other than the firebook thing yeah and so i was on one hand completely unprepared i had no speech i'm really what speech are you going to give at that yeah, point it's going to work on, um, on the maybe the best thing that could have that i could have done is what i did which is be a human face inside the door yeah because both times that the group tried to kick in the door it was after they saw my face they kick a half dozen more times than they'd leave mm. right so maybe that was it maybe it was just a humanizing moment that, that mm. kicks them out of. Yeah, so the maybe anger. they realized, okay, well, you know, property mm-hmm. damage is one thing. We don't want to actually hurt right. a person. Right. There's a person in there. It might have just snapped them out of that moment of maybe of kind of the, the riding the wave of adrenaline and riding the wave of like breaking things and, and yeah. breaking writing. But and the idea it, of hurting a person is different. Right, but if that hadn't been the case, if they had broken in, and and then what would they do? Would they have hurt me? What would that do for my family? How would I help the library if I am injured or whatever, you know? So I get injured and things get broken down. That solves nothing. Now, all this ends up being an academic concern because in the end, the library was not touched and we were fine. Um, But I did realize somewhere in the middle of that that I was an idiot and I was going to do nothing to defend the library. There's nothing I could do to stop a real threat. Uh, All I was doing was assuaging my own insecurities and fears by putting myself at risk. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted about the whole thing because on one hand I think I'm pretty proud that I was courage enough, courageous enough to be there yeah. and pretty appalled that I was stupid enough to be there. But it's, it's a fine line when you do something like that between mm-hmm. it being really courageous or really stupid. It depends right. on what the outcome is. If you ended up getting you know, injured or hurt or killed or the library had been really really badly damaged because somehow you being there had inflamed people even more yep. it would have been a really stupid Could decision a possibility. the fact that that didn't happen and the fact that hopefully you know just seeing you inside the library was enough to make people take a little bit of a step back and go okay no I, mm-hmm. we're we're going a little too far here i don't want to injure a person there's someone in there that maybe jarred them enough to stop the the outcome makes it it was a courageous thing had it been different, it would have been a oh, silly yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Any other outcome, and I would have been nothing but a moron mm-hmm. who ought to be fired, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pure luck. I mean, so much of this. So every, The library came out well, even though the whole town around us was suffering. 
throughout the fall of, of, of 2014. And so many of it, so many of the of the good outcomes that we experienced were just luck. Mm-hmm. The right person caught attention, caught our noticed what we were doing, and tweeted about us doing good things, and that results in a big donation campaign that we didn't even ask for, just kind of generated, bubbled up on Twitter, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. People who don't even know us are organizing huge, you know, book drives. All this great stuff that's just it's it's pure luck. It's it's luck that uh, that. Um, of all the libraries that have stepped up to help their communities in a crisis that we were noticed and we got good response from it. Yeah, I think like like you quite rightly pointed out um, in your talk on Friday, um, everyone needed the good news story and the library became the good news story. Mm-hmm. And it, was, mm-hmm. it was a really good, it was a kind of a nice narrative and they could easily pin you know, the, the happy story onto the library. It's such a short little story, I'll go ahead and tell it real quick. Um, what she's what she's referring to is um, <clears throat> early in the whole process during the the beginning back in August. There's a point when we were doing something very positive, and it had been about a week and a half, week something like that, of nothing but bad stories in Ferguson. And while we're out there doing this beginning this positive kind of program, <clears throat> a guy walked up with a giant camera, and he said the most wonderfully cynical thing I've ever heard, which is he looked right at me and said. Well, it's been a bad. It's been a week. We need a change in the story. You're it, and we got nothing but positive stories mm-hmm. from the media because we were doing a positive thing, and they needed to keep that story alive. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting insight swarm. into you know the the way that the media packages and controls are perception of things and the and the, mm-hmm. the the assumption that like the, this is it now that the story has been bad and it's been bad for quite a long time mm-hmm. it's time to turn mm-hmm. the tide like we're, mm-hmm. we're ready to look in another direction whether the story is done or not because it's not it's nowhere near done right They're, they had decided okay we have compassion fatigue on this one we need to end on a high we need to turn to something uplifting. Right. they got a fishtail back and forth between positive and negative but you know and it was it was was so phenomenal. Those were literally the first words he said to me. Mm. He didn't say hello. I am so and so from such and such. He just said that. They're like, <laughs> dude, <laughs> that is so jaded. <laughs> that like is so right so jaded. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, but in the end, um, that worked by being the positive story. We were the counter melody in the Ferguson song, and we were. Ferguson had become this hashtag and and uh, symbol uh, symbolized by fires and mm. and uh, tear gas and all that kind of stuff and by the library kind of breaking through to be that positive story it was also a reminder that Ferguson is an actual community it's human beings mm. yes yes we have major problems but we also have human beings working on those problems and the story that we, that he was covering was the school for peace which was actually lots and lots of people from Ferguson and around the area who come from vastly different backgrounds coming together to help the kids of Ferguson who had been left in the lurch when the schools had to stay closed for an extra week and a half. Um, That was a coming together story. That was a future hope story. That was a reminder that we were human beings story. That Ferguson is the kind of community where you walk to work and you chit chat with your neighbors on the way in, mm. not a fire zone. Now, that all being said, it's if you're in the certain parts of town at certain times of night, whenever the police action was happening and the protest, yeah. it was no joke. It was not safe. It was not fun. Mm. But at the same time, two blocks over, you're probably fine. And the next morning, everyone's getting up. They're picking up the trash that were left the night before, you know, some of the same people that are protesting are also getting up in the morning and cleaning up and then going off to their jobs and yeah. chit-chatting with people on the way in. We were actually a, still a community mm-hmm. and not just a hashtag. And yeah. by breaking through with our story, we're a reminder that, you know what, human beings are affected by these things. Mm-hmm. Um, not just, well, everyone from all sides are affected by these things. There's the profound impact of, of of the unarmed black man being killed mm-hmm. and all the waste that shakes and disturbs the community and then there's all the other fall off fall out fall, fall out from that mm-hmm. that continues to affect the community and being reduced to a hashtag and, and, and pictures of fire 
is an injustice in itself that the media perpetrated to heap on top of the other injustices that were the core story of that whole scenario. Yeah, it's a much more complex narrative than people kind of right. capable of focusing on at the time. So when things began to cool down then and you had a little bit of a chance to take a step back, mm-hmm. what was the first thing you thought about in terms of well, this has now happened, I have you know, I've been tested, my my perception of what I thought librarians should do or how I thought libraries should be in the heart of the in the heart of their community that had been tested you'd been you you had been put through kind of your paces in terms of reacting to a situation you could never have um, predicted mm-hmm. how did you think then about well how do I now make this kind of a, how do I operate at a more strategic level how do I begin to sort of bed down the the ethos of how the library responds to the community, how it uh, interacts with the community and helps the community, how do I begin to make that sustainable and so that it's not all on you and you know, develop programs and look forward. We were doing far, far more programs um, than our budgeting or our staffing could have ever allowed. And that's because mm-hmm. a lot of different organizations and individuals called the library saying, how can we help? Mm-hmm. And so we were doing dozens of programs a week. I have no idea how many programs we did over the fall of 2014. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, honestly, I'm mostly just reacting and hoping to keep our, my head above water in my job. Um, but for probably uh, all of 2015, it was thinking of how can I sustain this level of interest this kind of programming, uh, how much of this can I keep going? Yeah. Um, what kind of long-term good can I generate by having partnerships with these organizations that helped us out? So HP donated some computers to us, and I tried to turn that into, okay, let's meet with various tech companies in the area, and um, like Boeing and HP and that kind of thing, and see if we can make um, um, programming um technology related programming come out of it just trying to like extend this as far as I could and then and of course that was we had a lot of great stuff come out of that we did a lot of uh, technology programs with Boeing for example that have been wonderful for the community but that level of engagement is not even possible to sustain that we had in 2014 Yeah. and so at some point it became Let's set our new normal and let's set it as high as we can and see what if we can maintain it going down the down the road. And then it was, you know, we've got we've had these great donations, we've had all this response that's no longer here, and we're looking at our, you know, our tax income dropping, dropping, dropping. What are we going to have to do next? And that's where we are now is trying to figure out how we can keep ourselves afloat. When the tax, when the uh, donation money runs out in two years, mm-hmm. so I'm going back. I'm learning how to do fundraising, which I'd never done before, and which is actually kind of terrifying for me, because yeah. asking for money yeah, is yeah. absolutely appalling. It's it's asking for money is something that that, that makes me freak out. Mm-hmm. So let's do that a few thousand times, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we're we're trying now. All, a lot of my energy is focused on trying to uh, put together long term supports that allow us to keep doing. A more be a more responsive library and not pull back on ourselves and become a book warehouse. Yeah. So, yeah, the the job is changing in phases, but it is all some variation of how best can we leverage being responsive? Can we still be responsive? What's the normal for responsive? Mm-hmm. I do not want to be a quiet library that doesn't react to the community around it yeah. or find way you know seek ways to help them. But, you know, so many great ideas have never happened because we didn't have enough space or we didn't have enough staff or we didn't have whatever or we partnered with someone. And um, at some point, the email stopped being responded to and it all died out. And yeah. it's just... You can um, only do so much. That right. It's all resource dependent. Yeah. And we do a lot of good work and I feel pretty proud of a lot of what we do. Um, we, I mean, we're doing a ton of programming uh, relative to the size and funding of our library, but at the same time, uh, on the bad days, I feel like I'm Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. And that, you know, not whining, that's the job. Yeah. And I think what, you know, what I'm kind of struck by now in the time that's passed since, you know, Ferguson became the focus of um, international attention, it's almost become like this is going to be a reality for libraries more and more. There Mm -hmm. is a lot of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. There is in the US right now. Mm -hmm. There is here, everywhere. We're in an interesting, to put it mildly, time historically. Maybe this is just the new template for how libraries continue to be relevant, particularly public libraries. You can't not be, you know, reacting to what's going on in your community you can't not be kind of knitted into everything that's going on in your surroundings in some ways do you ever feel like well what happened in Ferguson and your react your reaction more and more libraries are going to be in that position and this is just this is as you said kind of the new normal and this is just the reality of what the job is now when you're supporting a community that's going through difficult times I yeah I think there may be more at least more awareness of the problems that are happening, mm-hmm. and I wish I wish that on no one. Um, if well yeah I wish that on no one. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time I know that um, over here in England and Ireland. Libraries are being hacked apart with axes by the politicians mm. um, in America because we are not our libraries. Well, there's there's a crazy amount of diversity in how libraries are. Yeah. They're all idiosyncratic, weird little institutions that find some way to normalize. Mm. Um, but for the ones in our area, we are like our my library is not part of a a, a larger governmental structure. Mm. It gets tax money directly, so. That is so far stable, but all the little bits of money that we get from here, there, and everywhere else are all being zeroed out. Yeah. And I think that um, that is squeezing us down harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be in a real bad position in about two years. Um, we won't be closed. It'll just be a matter of how much can we really do. Yeah. And I think it's a really uh, horrible shame that the people who are the politicians who are in charge and have control of so much money have no clue what the hell a library does. Mm-hmm. Haven't been to a library in 10 years because they're rich and so they don't have to. Yeah. Um, well, they just make the assumption that because everything is available online, yeah. the libraries don't necessarily have to exist anymore. With Our librarians don't have to yeah. exist anymore. Let's go with the staffless library idea, yeah. which is just foolishness. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not understanding that... A library without a librarian in it is a room full of books, and it and it it's 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 not even as good as that because mm-hmm. someone coming in with poor literacy skills, with poor information seeking skills, they can't access that knowledge. They need your help to facilitate them to do that. You are their mm. gateway to that knowledge. It, it just being there on a shelf and allowing them to go in and see where it is is not the same as them having full access to it. They need help. And that's presuming that the that the core of a library is books. Mm. Now I love books Most as much. Yeah. yeah, I love books as much or more than anyone else on the planet. I I adore books and always have. That's not the mission. Yeah, the books are the means. The books are a very good path to our goals. The mission is uh, lifelong learning, cultural literacy, being yeah. at the center of our community's work, especially its intellectual work and its kind of cultural work. That's not a book. Mm. A book is a path. A book is a means to the it's end. It's one tool in the, the arsenal of right. being a, a, a knowledge, being an informed person, being mm. a knowledge-driven society. Mm-hmm. And I can do the entire you know, long presentation about all the stuff that we did for the community in 2014 and how hard it was and all the struggling that we did and everything else without ever using the word book. Mm. Books are part of it. I mean, if yeah. I had talked about our book donations, I'd have prattled on for ten minutes about book donations and mm. and how uh, how much uh, ongoing uh, commitment they create. Yeah, and that's not like one of the things that I think is good about you know your story is that it's a different narrative for people who don't know libraries. Mm-hmm. Like, for people who don't know libraries, they're going to look at your story and go, "Wow, I would never have thought that that the library is that this this that this story is going to come was going to come out of." 
situation like Ferguson I would never have thought of all kind of public institutions that the library was going to be the one to step up I wouldn't have thought that that's something they would or should or could do so it's a different story maybe in some ways because we are so often dealing with people who fund us and know nothing about what we do they need the different yep. story they need to understand that we're not a room full of books they need to understand that we don't sit around stamping books all day and just sending them out into the world right. they need the different story and we have a mission that is part of what makes our community cohesive and functioning and growing and developing into a better community libraries are at the very heart of that and if all they think of is that we are a place where books hang out they're missing the whole, yeah. whole point. And the, the battle is lost at that point. Mm-hmm. So what's your, just to, to kind of wrap things up, um, in your time that you've been in, in Dublin, uh, what would your advice be for Irish librarians? Like I'm qualified yeah. to give I you know. any advice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. They're very humble. <clears throat> what would your advice be for any librarians in terms of how they change that narrative of what it is we do? Because I think that's a big part of it, changing the narrative for the for the rest of the world. Um, we already can you do. get a politician to listen to you is step one. And yeah. then at that point, then start talking about all the great things that libraries are doing, especially public libraries, because frankly, they're the ones that are best positioned to make this argument. And they're also the ones that are first out of the axe, yeah. from what I can tell. They're, they're most vulnerable. Mm. Um, to start talking about all the great things that libraries are doing, without obsessing on books. Yeah. Right? And to tell just to tell them that our mission is not to give books to people. Our mission is mm-hmm. the books are the means, not the ends. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we are pretty is. good at doing that. It's, good. It's just we need to... Well, you got to get into the ears of the people who are in charge and who are making these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe uh, just got to get that in. I, like I said, what do I know? Mm-hmm. You know? I'm not qualified to tell you anything about what you need to do, but... I guess maybe that meant that message, making them more aware of what libraries are really about and not just what they vaguely remember from when they were children. Mm-hmm. Last time that some shushing librarian told them uh, to put that other book down because they're not allowed to have it. <laughs> yeah. You know, get that image out of their head for what a library is and start putting in an image of community service programs, people coming to get help getting jobs. Um, uh, teaching kids how to code so they have a fallback job if they can't get a job in the in the current economy. Yeah, um, helping people who are homeless COVID figure out how to get shelter. The, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. At the conference this year, and things like that are mm-hmm. so much the way forward for libraries. Right. And so I, I can't think of anything else other than just, well, A, be that responsive. Yeah. Like actually do that kind of programming, that responsiveness and helping people find their I think sometimes as well, up. like we need to know that it's okay to go ahead and respond to stuff. Yeah. Um, to not, you know, to yep. not have a system that can't be responsive like that, to not have a system that's so rigid that you can't drop things and go, this mm-hmm. is what's happening, this is what we need to do now, this is the priority. My ulterior motive whenever I'm asked to speak about what we did is to make it seem absolutely normal to do just that, mm-hmm. right? And so if there is someone in the audience who's, like, been playing it super safe, they realize that they don't have to. They can also be responsive and take risks and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, start grappling with problems that they have so far um, carved out of their sense of responsibility. So... What can you do about homelessness? Well, we can't give people homes because we don't have those kind of resources. Mm-hmm. But we can do a little more with bringing in people who have expertise with providing information about resources in the, available in the area, with just being welcoming, mm-hmm. chit-chatting, get to know people and figure out what their needs are, so on and so forth. Is that part of the library's mission? Well, um, is wrestling with homelessness something that builds community? Yeah. Right. So you define the mission broadly enough and then there are infinite things you can do that are very hands-on, very responsive and may make a good argument whenever you're in front of a politician who doesn't have a clue what a library is. Okay. So we'll wrap it up with that. Um, we need to respond, take risks, shake things up. Yeah, if you can, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks a million, Scott, both for coming over and speaking at the conference and, oh, thank and you for, for, bringing for sharing me. your story with me now. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Scott for sharing his experience with me 
um, he's really created a whole new template really for what a public library can be um, and there's definitely some words of encouragement in there for all libraries. Um, the recording of Scott's ASL 2017 keynote speech should be up on the ASL website um, along with all the other conference presentations by the time this goes out or at the very least it should be up there shortly after. Um, so if you weren't lucky enough to catch his keynote in person, then you can view the recording on the website, which is www.aslibraries.com. Um, if you liked this episode, and if you want to hear more of the same, you can listen back to all 12 of our previous episodes, and please do subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Librarians Allowed is produced and presented by Laura Rooney-Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris. 